My name is uh, Theodore Meron. I am a judge at the ICTY at The Hague. Uh, the title of my lecture is Reflections on the Prosecution of War Crimes by International Tribunals, a Historical Perspective. And I'm happy to participate in this lecture series for the UN Audiovisual Library of International Law. My topic, you already know, is the prosecution of war crimes by international tribunals. 61 years ago, the international community, seeking to heal the wounds of a brutal war, embarked on a bold legal experiment. For the first time in history, legal mechanisms were invoked to bring to justice the perpetrators of war crimes and crimes against humanity in international tribunals specifically designed for that purpose. The trials at Nuremberg and Tokyo were endeavors both extraordinary and risky. Above all, they were unique in their time. In his famous opening statement for the prosecution at the outset, outset of the Nuremberg trial, Justice Robert Jackson eloquently remarked on the trial's novelty, that four great nations, flushed with victory and stung with injury, stayed the hand of vengeance and voluntarily submit their captive enemies to the judgment of the law is one of the most significant tributes that power has ever paid to reason. Indeed, the idea of bringing perpetrators of war crimes before a tribunal was so novel that it almost never happened. At Yalta, Stalin suggested that 50,000 people should simply be killed after the war, and Churchill thought a list of the major criminals should be drawn up here and they should be shot once their identity is established. Yet the American government forcefully advocated trials conducted not by national courts of the vanquished state or any victorious power, but by an international court. In the end, the Allies agreed, and they set up trials in which judges rigorously examined whether the actions of individual accused amounted to offenses under international law. Many of the accused were convicted, but some were acquitted, much to the shock of people who expected the trials to be mere formalities. The fact that the trials were honest and objective may be one of the reasons why Germans and Japanese overwhelmingly accepted the conclusion that the officials eventually punished were in fact guilty and deserving of sanction. Moreover, as Professor Herbert Wexler, a participant at Nuremberg, observed, the trials may have helped to stave off unauthorized acts of retribution against those believed to have been Nazis. Nuremberg and Tokyo were then, by many measures, a success. And this is a part of the reason that the concept of international criminal tribunals is less radical to us today. To be sure, Nuremberg and Tokyo had their shortcomings, and some of those shortcomings were endemic in the nature of the courts themselves. On the whole, however, the Nuremberg experiment in particular proved to be, as Justice Jackson had hoped, a triumph of reason. And in time, that triumph allowed the international community 
to establish the International Criminal Courts that now sit at The Hague and elsewhere. There are obvious differences between the modern international courts and the experiences of the post-World War II tribunals. One of the principal criticisms leveled against the post-World War II tribunals, for instance, was, and still is, that they were an exercise in victor's justice, a trial of the losers by and for the winners. In this lecture, I will highlight some of the similarities and differences between the post-World War II tribunals and the modern tribunals to show how humanitarian law has evolved, to demonstrate how the mechanisms for enforcement of humanitarian law have evolved over the past hundred years, I will begin by examining the status of war crimes law as it existed before Nuremberg and Tokyo. I will then turn to Nuremberg and Tokyo themselves and compare them to the modern international tribunals. So let me turn to the war crimes law before Nuremberg and Tokyo, and particularly to the landscape before the First World War. A century ago, the laws of war were largely uncodified. Until the mid-19th century, the laws of war existed solely as custom, evidence in national laws, military manuals, and religious teachings. The second half of the 19th century witnessed the beginning of a trend towards codification. This period was marked by the 1856 Paris Declaration on Maritime Law, the 1864 Geneva Convention on Wounded Soldiers, and the 1868 St. Petersburg Declaration, barring the use of certain small explosive projectiles. Yet it was not until the turn of the 20th century, at the 1899, 1899 and 1907 Hague Peace Conference, that the modern law of war and war crimes began to take shape. Spared by fears that modern weapons technology would permit wars to get out of hand, delegates first met at the Hague in 1899 it respond in response to a call from the Russian Chart. The conference produced a convention on maritime war and the convention with respect, respect to the laws and customs of war on land. The first general multilateral codification of the laws of land war. Far more productive than the 1899 conference, the 1907 conference produced 10 agreements on the laws of war including the Hague Convention No. 4, a revamped version of the 1899 Convention on the Laws and Customs of War and Land. While the law of war developed significantly over the course of the two Hague Conferences, mechanisms to enforce that law did not. The Fourth Hague Convention of 1907 provided no mechanism for the imposition of individual criminal responsibility. Instead, payment of compensation by states was the chief form of punishment set out in the Convention. Moreover, states had to negotiate over the amount of compensation, and these negotiations proved long and complex. Not surprisingly, the Force Hague Convention provision on compensation was criticized as having little deterrent effect. 
other means of enforcing the laws and customs of war at the turn of the century also lacked teeth. States could try their own national f nationals for war crimes, but they seldom did so. And although an aggrieved state could take military action against the offending state, such reprisals were criticized for simply escalating the hostilities. Even if a belligerent state wished to prosecute foreign war criminals, it was not clear that it would have jurisdiction over captured enemy combatants, and in any event, the act of state defense traditionally immunized heads of state from prosecution in foreign courts. Let me now turn to World War I and its aftermath. War crimes law came very much to the fore at the end of the First World War. Even as the war raged, commentators began calling for justice to be done in the wake of the atrocities. The process of establishing a legal framework to address the atrocities began shortly after the war ended. At its first plenary meeting in January 1919, the Paris Peace Conference <coughs> appointed a multinational commission to inquire into the war's causes and consequences. After two months of secret meetings, the commission issued its final report. The commission determined that Germany and Austria-Hungary bore primary responsibility for the war, criticized Bulgaria and Turkey for supporting the German and Austrian aggression, and found that all of these states practiced barbarous or illegitimate methods of warfare. Seeking to precisely classify the criminal acts committed by officials from these states, the Commission prepared a catalogue of 32 offences that, according to its report, fell within the meaning of war crimes. These included, among other things, murder and massacres, torture of civilians, rape, and internment of civilians under inhuman conditions. In an annexed listing of instances in which the Central Empires and their allies committed such offences, however, the Commission said that the listed acts constituted violations of the laws and customs of war and the laws of humanity. Among the atrocities listed were some committed by Turkish and German forces against Turkish subjects, Armenians, and by Austrian forces against Austrian subjects. These were likely the acts that, in the Commission's view, violated the laws of humanity and not the laws of war. Having concluded that officials and soldiers from Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria and T Turkey committed illegal acts, the Commission recommended creation of an international tribunal to try officials responsible for some of the worst. The Commission also concluded that criminal liability should extend to all persons responsible for war crimes, including heads of state. According to the Commission, a prohibition on the prosecution of heads of state who were guilty of war crimes would shock the conscience of the world. On June 28, 1919, several months after the Commission filed its report, the Treaty of Versailles was signed. 
the treaty contains several critical provisions relating to wartime conduct. Despite American and Japanese objections, Article 227 of the treaty provided that the Allied and Associated Powers publicly reign William II of Hohenzollern, formerly German Emperor, for a supreme offense against international morality and the sanctity of treaties, and specified that a special tribunal will be constituted to try the accused. For the first time, a treaty addressed the individual responsibility of a head of state for initiating and conducting what we now call a crime of aggression or crime against peace. As a practical matter, however, Article 227 was a dead letter. Rather than adopting the strident language of the Commission's recommendation, the treaty spoke in more abstract terms of the Kaiser's supreme offense against international morality. That phrase had as little meaning then as it does now. Article 227 articulated a moral rather than a legal offense, but that was part of the intent. In any event, it was clear that the Netherlands, where the Kaiser was in exile, would not permit his extradition. The treaty fell short of the Commission's recommendations in other respects. The treaty contained a second provision related to the prosecution of individuals for war crimes. Articles 228 and 229 stated in part the German government recognizes the right of the Allied and Associated Powers to bring before military tribunals persons accused of having committed acts in violation of the laws and customs of war. These clauses did not call for an international criminal court. Instead, they merely contemplated the use of military tribunals. Moreover, through Article 228, the German government recognized only the victorious powers' right to prosecute violations of the laws and customs of war, rather than violations of the laws of humanity. After the Treaty of Versailles had been signed, German opposition to Allied-conducted trials proved considerable, prompting the Allies to worry that such trials would weaken the German government and enable militarists or Bolsheviks to take over. With fears about unrest in Germany mounting, the Allies agreed to allow German, Germany to conduct the trials of alleged war criminals in Supreme Court in Leipzig. The Allies also agreed to reduce the list of people to be prosecuted to only 45 individuals. But even that number was too high for the Germans. And since the Procurator General of the Supreme Court contain, retained prosecutorial discretion, ultimately only 12 military officers were brought to trial. Two and a half years after the signing of the armistice, the trials finally commenced before the penal senate of the Reichsgericht in Leipzig. Of the 12 defendants, six were convicted. But even in those cases, the German court imposed lenient punishments. Other attempts to achieve justice for atrocities committed during the war 
similarly fell short. The Treaty of Lausanne that was eventually signed by the Allies in Turkey in 1923 contained no war crimes clauses. Instead, it was accompanied by a declaration of amnesty that covered all offenses committed during the wartime period. Rather than insist on war crimes clauses, the Allies agreed that Turkey itself would prosecute offenders. Those trials, known as the Istanbul Trials, were no more successful than the Leipzig Trials. Many defendants were absent, the sentences were light, and there was no popular support for the proceeding. In sum, while international humanitarian law saw considerable doctrinal development in the half-century preceding Nuremberg, enforcement lagged far behind. Nobody faced an international tribunal after World War I. Few faced domestic prosecution in Germany and Turkey. And in those cases that were actually brought, the few and far between convictions resulted in light penalties. Thus, while war crimes law had increasingly well-established contours going into World War II, persons violating that law faced only a hypothetical possibility of criminal sanctions. In a sense, war crimes law had not yet truly become a form of criminal law. Let me now turn to the period from Nuremberg to The Hague. The Treaty of Versailles sowed the seeds for the development of international criminal law that followed World War II. The Allies realized that entrusting trials of alleged war criminals entirely to the courts of the criminals' own countries would not produce real justice. Instead, an international tribunal was required and it had to be as impartial as possible. The Allies began during the course of the war to set up mechanisms for addressing the atrocities that were occurring. In two early documents, the St. James Declaration of 42 and the Moscow Declaration of 43, the Allies, uh, Allies resolved to prosecute war crimes. Nuremberg and also Tokyo represented substantial step forward in the development of the law of war crimes. My aim in this part of the lecture is to highlight the similarity and differences between Nuremberg and Tokyo and the modern tribunals. Importantly, while the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals were established by the victorious powers, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, ICTY, and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, ICTR, are the first ever truly international criminal courts established and funded by the United Nations. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, is a treaty body established by state parties to the Treaty of Rome of 1998. From battlefield violations to prosecutions of abuses against civilians. Most of the post-World War prosecutions concerned classical violations of the law governing the conduct of hostilities. World War II prosecutions were focused mostly on abuses committed against civilians and civilian populations, 
whether as crime against humanity or as violations of the provisions on occupation in Hague Convention Number no. 4. This was a product of the sheer immensity of abuses against civilian population. The focus can also partially be explained by the desire to avoid to quoque its arguments, which could have arisen during the prosecution of conventional war crimes. While the ICTY has dealt with some Hague matters, such consideration has been rare in the ICTR. In both tribunals, abuses against civilians have taken pride of place. Let me say something about paper trail and availability of evidence. Seemingly mundane facts about evidence and the profile of defendants reveal much about how the prospects for enforcement of humanitarian law are evolving. The case that the prosecution is able to make in any given criminal trial is dictated largely by the available evidence. This truism is often overlooked in international law, but it actually explains critical differences between the trials at Nuremberg and at The Hague, differences which demonstrate the pervasive difficulties facing the modern tribunals. Gathering evidence after World War II was comparatively easy. One thing can be said of the Nazi regime, they kept good records. Rather than basing its case primarily on witness testimony, the prosecution was able to rely heavily on the defendant's own words and records to prove its accusations. Add to that the extensive police powers that the Allies exercised in occupied Germany, and you have an evidence-gathering apparatus that any prosecutor would envy. Things are different in the modern tribunals. You do not have the benefit of a police power to search for evidence or a paper trail. The ICTY instead must rely on the cooperation of supportive governments and of individuals who often may realistically fear reprisals if they cooperate openly. The Security Council resolution adopting the ICTY statute requires all member states of the UN to comply with the ICTY's requests and orders. Yet governments do not always cooperate, and when they do, are in practice, practice often willing to share information only if its sources are kept confidential. A demand clearly in tension with the defendant's right to challenge vigorously the evidence against him. The ICTR has enjoyed the solid support of the government of Rwanda, except when the ICTR prosecutor tried to invest, investigate crimes allegedly committed by the Tutsis. This further reveals how national political considerations continue to affect the work of the tribunals. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, is a treaty organization not created by the Security Council, may have equal or even greater difficulties in marshalling evidence. The problem of an incomplete evidentiary base is also much more common at the ICTY 
than in domestic criminal cases. There have been cases in which defendants have claimed that governments have deliberately withheld information to shield some defendants and implicate others. These are challenges facing any tribunal trying accused from states that have not been completely vanquished. Difficulties in gathering evidence thus make it apparent that the bodies enforcing international criminal law still lack muscle within the international community. We'd like to say a few words about the profile of defendants. More optimistic signs can be seen in the profile of the defendants being tried. Just as the strength of Nuremberg paved the way indeed made possible the modern project of international criminal law, so has the legitimacy earned by the ICTY encouraged both national governments to turn over more senior figures and, more importantly, spared the international community to exert pressure on those governments. Again, Nuremberg and Tokyo, with the might of the victorious allies behind them, could prosecute almost anyone involved. Hitler escaped judgment only because he committed suicide. A political decision was taken by the powers constituting the Tokyo Tribunal not to prosecute Emperor Hirohito. But there was never a suggestion that the tribunal could not have prosecuted him had it wanted. Both tribunals, like the modern counterparts, dealt with defendants of varying status and level of responsibility. There was more than one trial in Nuremberg. The first is the best known because it involved the most senior defendants. The first and only trial by the International Military Tribunal, or IMT, with 22 leading Nazi war criminals in the dock, began in Nuremberg in November 20, 1945, and lasted nine months. The tribunal rendered a judgment on October 1, 1946. Three of the defendants were acquitted, seven received prison terms, and 12 were sentenced to hang. Following the IMT trial, American occupation authorities conducted 12 proceedings at Nuremberg pursuant to Allied Control Council Law No. 10. In all, 177 defendants were tried in these later proceedings. While less prominent than the chief Nazi leaders tried by the IMT, the defendants were leaders of Nazi Germany's government, military and economy, and they were charged with playing central roles in the crimes perpetrated by the Nazi regime. The Allied authorities in Japan also held separate sets of trials for senior officials and lower-ranking officials. In the first set of trials held at Tokyo, 25 senior officials known as Class A criminals were tried for war crimes. The group included premiers, foreign ministers, ambassadors, generals, and others. After more than two years, all were found guilty on at least one charge. Seven were sentenced to death. In the second set of trials held at Yokohama, another 980 
less senior officials and officers, class B and C criminals, were tried for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Some of them were of quite low rank. Early on, the trials at The Hague looked less like the IMT trial of the top Nazi leaders and the first trial in Tokyo, and more like the later proceedings against significant but less prominent officials. But as time went on, the impression of the tribunal's worthiness grew and international and local pressure led to fuller cooperation by the national governments, resulting in a greater number of senior government officials and military commanders being held responsible. Slobodan Milosevic is the most obvious example. And among those awaiting trials are President Milan Milutonovic, who is now being tried, senior generals and chiefs of staff of the armed forces and security services. Nevertheless, the ICTI remains largely at the mercy of the national governments in the Balkans to apprehend such important leaders as Karadzic and Mladic. The ICTY has also increased its focus on top-level officials as a part of its completion strategy. A recognition of the ICTY status as a temporary tribunal. Unlike the ICTY, the ICTR has always been able to focus on senior level accused. From the beginning, the tribunal in Arusha received substantial cooperation not only from the government of Rwanda, but also from the governments of other African nations to which many of the suspected war crimes had fled. As a, as a result of this cooperation, the ICTR was able to begin trying former cabinet ministers and high-level military commanders quickly. It makes sense for international tribunals to focus on top officials who helped to orchestrate atrocities. International tribunals have resources far more limited than those of national legal systems. This of necessity dictates some selectivity in who will be tried by such a tribunal. Just as important, trials of those who orchestrate at atrocities help to demonstrate international condemnation of the crimes and provide vindication for substantial numbers of victims. By contrast, if nations where atrocities took place were capable of conducting adequate trials, even if only for lower level accused, and such trials were marred by a vigorous, good-faced prosecution, due process rights for the defendant, impartial judging, and protection of witnesses from intimidation and reprisals, there would be significant benefits to letting those nations conduct the trials. Trials close to home may be better followed than those occurring in a distant forum serving to better educate people about atrocities that occurred in their country. Moreover, condemnation of atrocities by the country's own legal system may serve to better inspire the people of that country to condemn the atrocities themselves. The ICTY has begun referring cases involving intermediate and lower level accused to local courts 
in the former Yugoslav republics. And these courts will have an opportunity to prove that local trials, in fact, produce such benefits. Let me say something about offenses recognized. Prior to Nuremberg, customary international law, of course, existed, but it had never been applied in an international court. The challenge for Nuremberg then was to find a way to bring the existing law to bear in a multinational court. The London Charter that created the IMT dealt with this issue by, ident by identifying the crimes within the IMT's jurisdiction. This crime fell into three categories, which the London Charter termed as crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. It then defined each of these classes of crimes. The Charter also allowed prosecutors to charge major war criminals with conspiracy, and it stated that defenses of state immunity and superior orders would not be relevant to guilt. Each of the legal grounds set forth in the London Charter was controversial. Never before had aggression been treated as illegal rather than merely political wrong, and never had senior officials been held criminally liable as individuals. The concept of conspiracy liability was not only novel in international law, but it was especially foreign to lawyers from civil law traditions. And also the notion of crimes against humanity with its criminal liability, including citizen-to-citizen -citizen acts, seems second nature to us now. It had never formed the basis for international criminal liability before World War II. In Japan, the trials were conducted by the International Military Tribunal for the Far East. That tribunal was not created by an international diplomatic conference, but by a charter issued as a military order by General Douglas MacArthur, the supreme commander for the Allied powers in Japan. Nevertheless, the charter tracked Nuremberg clo Nuremberg's closely. Despite the initial controversy, Nuremberg's legal legacy was rapidly and broadly established. The Genocide Convention so soon followed, 1948, as did the Geneva Conventions for the Protection of Victims of War, 1949, and pressure built to establish a permanent international criminal court. Nuremberg's major premise that individuals who lead their nations into aggressive wars should be held criminal liable as individuals was widely accepted for crimes against peace, but remains controversial enough not to have been elevated into the ICC statute. These developments stimulated doctrinal developments. Then came Vietnam. The acts of war by both the United States and North Vietnam sparked a new debate over the applicability of international legal norms and broadly about inadequate compliance with the law. The disagreement was not over the definition of the offenses, but rather over the inadequacy of the law in dealing with the conduct of hostilities, 
protection of medical evacuation aircraft, and the treatment of prisoners of war. These difficulties were increased by questions concerning the applicability of international humanitarian conventions to internal and mixed internal international conflicts. There was then pressure to renew the law through the elaboration of the two additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions adopted in 1977. Which brings us to the modern tribunals at The Hague and Arusha. Using the London Charter as a model, the UN Security Council, exercising its authority under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, enacted the statutes that created the ICTY and ICTR. Those statutes set forth in detail the crimes over which the ad hoc tribunals have jurisdiction. As at Nuremberg, those crimes include war crimes and crimes against humanity. Unlike the London Charter, however, the ICTY and ICTR statutes do not include crimes against peace. They are also more detailed in their definitions and broader in scope, encompassing war crimes in internal conflicts. At the ICTI, although our definitions are more detailed, they still require extensive judicial interpretation. In adding the judicial gloss, we, like the court at Nuremberg, refer to the customary underpinnings of the crimes. Our resort to customary law, however, is more methodical than Nuremberg's, and this is partly because of the criticism leveled against the Nuremberg convictions. Critics of Nuremberg charged that the law applied at Nuremberg originated in the London Charter and that it was unlawfully applied ex post facto to the German defendants. This is not correct. The law applied at Nuremberg was grounded in existing conventional and customary international law. But to forestall similar criticism of the ad hoc tribunals, we take pains to explain the customary and conventional underpinnings of our decisions. Consequently, the ICTY judgments are helping to revitalize customary law and to give international law a solid foundation in both codified law and judicial decisions. The ICC is different in this respect. Its statute resembles more of a civil law code and is to be applied as such. I would like to say now a few words about gender crimes. Rape and violence against women had long been accepted as natural consequences of war. The Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals recorded a substantial amount of evidence of sex crimes committed during World War II but they gave virtually no treatment to these crimes in their judgments. The ICTY and the ICTR have been groundbreaking in this area. Both statutes explicitly include rape as a crime against humanity, and the tribunals have successfully prosecuted various forms of sexual violence as instruments of genocide, crimes against humanity, and crimes of war and thus developing a crucial, crucial area of international humanitarian law. The tribunals made a major contribution in grounding the prohibition of rape and customary international law. 
and the ICC specifically defines sexual crimes such as rape and sexual slavery. Now I turn to the jurisdiction of the tribunals. The tribunals' respective jurisdictions differ in another respect. The London Charter extended international criminal responsibility to atrocities committed within a single country, even between its own citizens. But the scope of that liability was limited because the offenses were required to be wartime of atrocities. Thus, the Nuremberg Tribunal had no jurisdiction over atrocities committed within and by Germany in the years leading up to the outbreak of World War II. Nevertheless, there is no question that crimes against humanity constituted the most revolutionary contribution Nuremberg made to international criminal law. Over time, however, the definition of crimes against humanity lost the required nexus with an armed conflict. For instance, the UN Convention on the Non-Applicability of Statutory Limitations to War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity, 1968, applied to crimes against humanity, whether committed in time of war or in time of peace. At the ICTY, Article 5 of the statute defines crimes against humanity subject to the jurisdiction of the tribunal as certain crimes, and I quote, committed in armed conflict, whether international or internal in character, unquote. Although this provision appears to require a nexus with an armed conflict, the appeals chamber has interpreted the requirement as related only to the tribunal's subject matter jurisdiction. Under the case law of both ad hoc tribunals, then, a word nexus is not required under customary law. The ICC statute confirms that no nexus with an armed conflict is required. Under Article 7, crimes against humanity can be committed in all situations, international wars, internal wars of whatever intensity, and peacetime circumstances. These changes relate to another significant legal, legal development, the international criminalization of internal atrocities. The statutes for the ad hoc tribunals have contributed significantly to the extension of international humanitarian law to non-international conflicts. And the ICC statute also sets forth serious violations of the laws and customs applicable in armed conflicts not of an international character, within the established framework of international law. These developments are a welcome extension of Nuremberg's principles. I would like to say something about due process. The provisions on criminal procedure in the London and Tokyo charters were rudimentary at best. For instance, the convicted persons could ask for clemency from senior military officers, but there was no mechanism for appeal to a higher court. As mentioned earlier, one of the principal criticisms of Nuremberg and Tokyo was and is that they were victor's courts trying the vanquished, and that criticism resonated most strongly in the context of due process protections. Two examples illustrate this point. The London Charter expressly provided in Article 12 that trials could be conducted in absentia. The tribunal tried, convicted, and sentenced to death one defendant, 
Martin Bormann, head of the party chancery, even though the Allies were unable to locate and arrest him. The charter contained no protection against double jeopardy. On the contrary, Article 11 stated that persons convicted by the tribunal could be separately charged and punished by a national military or occupation court. At least three Nuremberg defendants were prosecuted in German courts following prosecution by the tribunal. But Nuremberg's track record on due process protections was not all bad. Fairness norms inevitably crept into the proceedings. Although the Soviets were of the view that the burden should rest on the defense rather than the prosecution, the tribunal imposed a rigorous Anglo-American burden on the prosecution, so rigorous that some of the accused were acquitted. Due process protections also triumphed over the American plan to focus at Nuremberg on trials of Nazi organizations such as the Gestapo. The intention was to convict these organizations at trial and then use the convictions in follow-on proceedings to bring to justice thousands of individual members. But the tribunal swore this plan by interpreting conspiracy alone and by reading additional elements of specific intent into the conspiracy and aggressive war charges. The Japanese trials had much greater problems with due process and bias. The defense lacked time and resources and was denied access to some relevant material. Justice Pal of India published a long dissent in which he argued that the rules of evidence had been slanted against the defense. One of the enduring lessons of Nuremberg and Tokyo then is that due process protections are not an impediment to the administration of international justice, rather they are indispensable. Tokyo's more, more cavalier attitude to the law and the defendants is the major factor in its relative marginality in the past 60 years and its near total lack of influence on international law. The ad hoc tribunal at the Hague and Arusha and the permanent ICC are supported by detailed statutes and extensive rules of procedure and evidence that are a far cry from the brief London Charter. At the ICTY and ICTR, the accused has a right to be present at this trial and the tribunals have a primacy over national courts, thus preventing concurrent or consecutive convictions by multiple jurisdictions for the same charges. And the UN statutes expressly created an appeal chamber to which defendants may appeal not only their convictions, but also certain interlocutory issues. Moreover, in general, the modern tribunals adhere to the catalogue of human rights protections embodied in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and, increasingly, those in the European Convention on Human Rights. So while Nuremberg was hardly a failure from the perspective of due process rights, its shortcomings have inspired its heirs to do better. I would turn to criminality of norms. The post-World War II tribunals built on a body of law that had clearly prohibited certain actions during wartime. 
However, before Nuremberg and Tokyo, it was far from clear that these actions could be criminalized or only form the basis for state responsibility. Indeed, as a practical matter, Nuremberg was the first international court to try defendants on the basis of this body of law. The Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals appear to have taken it for granted that violations of the substantive provisions of the Hague and Geneva Conventions were criminal. Thus, although, the, thus, although neither the Geneva Conventions that preceded those of 49, nor the Force Hague Conventions contained explicit penal provisions, they were accepted as a basis for prosecutions and convictions in the post-war II tribunals. The Geneva Conventions of August 12, 49 introduced the grave breaches system, which explicitly criminalizes certain acts. The grave breaches system requires the state parties to criminalize certain acts and to prosecute or extradite the perpetrators. Until recently, the accepted wisdom was the neither common article 3, which is not among the grave breaches provisions of the Geneva Conventions, nor additional protocol 2, which contains no provisions on grave breaches, provided a basis for universal jurisdiction and that they constituted, at least on the international plane, an uncertain basis for individual criminal responsibility. It has been asserted that the normative customary law rules applicable in non-international armed conflict do not encompass the criminal element of war crimes. As early as the discussions of the ICTY statutes, however, voices urging international criminalization of violations of common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention and additional Protocol 2 had been heard with amazing speed. International conceptions of common Article 3 have changed and the perception that its violation triggers individual criminal responsibility in non-international conflicts has emerged. As regards the ICTR, there was no opposition in the Security Council to treating violation of common Article 3 and additional Protocol 2 as a basis for the individual criminal responsibility of perpetrators. <coughs> that an obligation is addressed to governments is not dispositive of the penal responsibility of individuals if individuals clearly must carry out that obligation. The Nuremberg Tribunals thus considered as binding not only in Germany but also in the on individual defendants those provisions of the 1929 Geneva Convention and the 1907 Hague Convention that were addressed to belligerents, the occupant, or an army of occupation. As the International Military Tribunal so eloquently stated, crimes against international law are committed by men, not by abstract entities. And only by punishing individuals who commit such crimes can the provisions of international law be enforced. This principle should, however, not obscure the fact that in some crimes, states play a critical role and that the criminal responsibility of individuals is cumulative with state responsibility. States must remain answerable for such collective crimes as those committed by the Nazis during World War II. 
Typically, norms of international law have been addressed to states. With increasing frequency, however, international law, and especially the law of war, has directed its proscriptions both to states and to individuals and groups. Indeed, the principal purpose of the punishment of war, of war criminals is to improve compliance with the law. The trend towards imposing individual criminal responsibility for violations of an increasing number of norms of international law is clearly ascendant. International conventions that proscribe certain activities of international concern without creating international tribunals to try the violators characteristically obligate states to prohibit those activities and to punish people under their jurisdiction. Sources of law. Like the ICTY, other international criminal tribunals are also bound by the principle of nullum crimen sine lege. Indeed, this principle has been much discussed with respect to the Nuremberg tribunals. Customer law was essential to the Nuremberg tribunals' ability to convict Nazi war criminals. The Nuremberg tribunals were faced with the problem that the applicable provisions of the Geneva and Hague Conventions defining the relevant substantive proscriptions and considered declarator of customer law did not expressly criminalize their violations. Thus, there was some question whether offenders had been sufficiently on notice that their conduct entailed criminal liability. The International Military, Tri Military Tribunal described the Nuremberg Charter as both the exercise of the sovereign power of the victorious countries and as the expression of international law existing at the time of its creation. Dismissing the challenge based on the principle of legality, the IMT noted that the law of war was to be found not only in treaties but also in the customs and practices of states and the general principles of justice. Some criticized the Nuremberg tribunals for this relatively loose approach to the legality principle, which looked not just to treaties or customary law defined in the traditional sense, but also to the notion of general principles of law common to civilized nations. And to be sure, the Nuremberg tribunals did not provide a very satisfactory explanation as to how aspects of the 1929 Geneva Convention, POW Convention, and the 1907 Hague Convention Number no. 4 so quickly metamorphosed into customary norms. Nonetheless, in my view, the tribunal's general approach was, under the circumstances, appropriate. The crimes with, with which the Nuremberg defendants were charged, including murder, torture, and enslavement, carried out on enormous scale were so clearly, clearly criminal under every domestic legal system in the world that it could hardly be said that the prospect of criminal liability for them was unpredictable. It cannot, in my view, be said that the Nuremberg war crimes proceedings compromised basic fairness. One thing is clear, however. The Nuremberg tribunals rooted the principle of legality, not only in custom, but also in treaties and general principles of criminal law. It should be made clear that the criticism of Nuremberg for violating the legality principle was directed primarily to crimes against peace 
and secondarily to crimes against humanity. Its war crimes jurisdiction triggered few dissents. The ICTY has likewise declined to engage in an overly formalistic assessment of custom in instances where the criminality of conduct is obvious. In its similar interlocutory decision on jurisdiction in the Tajik case, the ICTY appeals chamber stated that to be subject to prosecution by the tribunal as a violation of laws and customs of war, an offense must violate either customary law or a treaty that was unquestionably binding on the parties at the time of the alleged offense. Nuremberg, of course, provides a precedent for the principle of legality to be satisfied by reference to treaties that were enforced at the time of the offense. However, in the case of the ICTY, such reliance on treaties must be reconciled with the statement in the Secretary General's 1993 report that the tribunal should apply rules of IHL, which are beyond any doubt a part of customary law. Why has the ICTY preferred to re re rely on customary principles rather than treaty law? One reason, obviously, was to follow as closely as possible the language of the Secretary General's report. Another may have been to avoid doubts as to succession to treaties, their continuing binding character and reservations, and the scope and validity of ad hoc agreements between the belligerents. Reliance on customer law provides additional comfort because of the generality of that law. The legality principle likewise governs the other international and mixed criminal tribunals operating today, including the ICTR, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the ICC. As much as possible, the Rome Conference sought to reflect in treaty language customary international law. Where it has gone beyond customary law may pose particular difficulties where nationals of non-state parties are prosecuted. Finally, I'm going to say a few words about the influence of Nuremberg and the modern tribunals on the future of international law and the avoidance of atrocities. I will now speak about the influence of Nuremberg and modern, the modern tribunals on the future of international law and the avoidance of atrocities. Nuremberg had an almost incalculable effect on normative international law. But sadly, the second half of the 20th century and now, the beginning of the 21st, have been so marked by atrocities that one commentator has named the period the age of genocide. These atrocities have continued, not only in spite of Nuremberg and its legacy, but also the increasing interest in international humanitarian law. So if such atrocities still occur, what is the legacy of Nuremberg and its latter-day heirs? It would be wrong to conclude that the international tribunals do not work simply because atrocities, atrocities have continued to occur. After all, we would hardly say that domestic criminal law has no deterrent force simply because some citizens continue to commit murder or assault. Furthermore, international criminal tribunals serve a variety of noble goals beyond deterrence. 
by throwing into stark relief the consequences of ethnic and religious hatred. The tribunals have demonstrated the viciousness of war criminals, have, con have contributed to the rule of law in the region. The ICTY, for one, has made a fundamental and lasting contribution to bringing justice to the peoples of the former Yugoslavia. Due in no small part to the tribunal, international humanitarian and human rights law today holds greater currency and is better understood than it was just a decade ago. The very existence of the ICC may cause more prosecution of war crimes in the courts of the countries within its jurisdiction. After some 10 years, the ICTY and ICTR have established an impressive body of jurisprudence on both substantive international humanitarian law and criminal law and, equally important, on criminal procedure and evidence. Their judgments have filled the gaps in international procedure and evidentiary law left by Nuremberg and their success serves as a model for future prosecutions. Over the past decade, in dozens of trials and appeals, the tribunals have shown that it is possible to apply international criminal and humanitarian law in actual cases. They have helped to instill the idea that justice, not retribution or impunity, should be the response to horrific crimes. Still, it is important to remember that international criminal law does not provide all the answers. It is only one component of the highly complicated reactions to humanitarian emergencies. Just as we do not expect domestic criminal law to address all the effects of serious crimes, we should not expect international criminal trials to address all of the effects of large-scale atrocities. I hope that a multifaceted approach that includes not only legal judgments but also other tools, asset freezes, travel restrictions and political stigmatization, among others, will have a meaningful effect in deterring future crimes. Of course, in the shifting landscape of international relations, progress on crimes committed by sovereign entities is only part of the picture. More and more atrocities are being perpetrated by non-governmental actors who purport to operate entirely outside of international norms, casting themselves as interstitial players exempt from legal rules and bound only by their own moral code. These groups, primarily terrorists and religious fanatics, are challenging all accepted rules of humanitarian and criminal law. The challenge for international humanitarian and criminal law then is to reassert itself in the face of this impunity, to maintain the foothold it gained at Nuremberg, and to uh, continue to extend the principle of universality to all peoples, groups and nations. As the ad hoc tribunals move towards the completion of their task, the future of effective compliance with international criminal law will depend on the ICC and national and mixed tribunals. The mission of Nuremberg, in Justice Jackson's words, was to summon such detachment 
and intellectual integrity to the task, that the trial would commend itself to posterity as fulfilling humanity's aspirations to do justice. Work always remains to be done, but with these noble goals as our lodestar, we are making progress, and the expanding universe of international humanitarian law is stronger as a result. And I thank you for your patience.